If you've been with us for this last few weeks, we're in the middle of our seven hits from the Jewish Songbook series. We're looking at seven hits from the Psalms. And as we know from looking at some of these, the right song can take us right back to that place, wherever that place is. It brings up everything that we experienced in that moment, especially if there was something special happening at that time. I've already heard from a few of you, and I appreciate it, that some of these Psalms have done the very same thing for you because something was very important happening to you in that time when you first came in contact with a specific Psalm. And so God may have become very real to you, or perhaps he was revealing himself to you through creation as we saw. And so next week, if you wanna prepare for next Sunday's Psalm, we're gonna be looking at Psalm 67, let the nations rejoice. Today, Psalm 1, we're looking at the title track, so to speak, from the entire album. <laughs> it's really sort of a three-album set because, as we talked about, the Psalms are divided into three distinct sections with a doxology at the end of each section. Today, what happiness sounds like. Now, if you start reading that Psalm right off the bat, you might think, wait a minute, it doesn't look like we're really talking about happiness to start with, but we'll see why that's true because it really is making a huge distinction about those people who are interfered with their happiness or thwarted in their search for happiness versus those who actually find happiness. We should know that ancient, even though these are ancient words that we're looking at, ancient doesn't equate with irrelevant. Human reasoning hasn't brought us any closer to lasting happiness. I say that because there is a, a rising tide of voices in our generation who scoff at ancient wisdom, especially if that wisdom comes from God's word, the Bible. Those voices have been getting louder and they've quite frankly been getting a little more caustic than we've ever seen them before. We've seen a steady march since the enlightenment all the way into our postmodern, post-truth, post-Christian age that we're living in right now. Truthfully, up until about 200 years ago, there really wasn't a lot of pushback. People used to revere those who were wise and who got their wisdom from God's word. It's because of several of those philosophic influences that started to pull us away from our roots that we started to hear these voices getting louder and more caustic. If you want a good treatise on that, if you're an intellectual and you're looking for a good book to read on how we got to where we are today, I would suggest the book, How Now Shall We Live by Charles Colson. It's a very erudite book. It sort of follows in, in step with Francis Schaeffer's book, How Then Shall We Live? He did that one a few years prior to Chuck Colson. Chuck, as you know, is that fellow who was involved in the Watergate scandal and then went to prison because uh, the crimes he was found guilty for had to do with the safety of our country and they deemed it necessary for him to pay for what he had done. While he was there, he had a real awakening experience spiritually and then went on to start Prison Fellowship Ministries, a Christian ministry. And uh, it's just a, an amazing work to see what has grown out of that. He's in heaven now, so he's enjoying his eternity. But if you want a good book, read that one, How Now Shall We Live by Chuck Colson. I think that it's fair for us to ask the question, has human reasoning and empirical investigation brought us any closer to happiness by and large, globally speaking? And I think to answer that question, to be honest, when I look around, I don't believe so. I don't think it's taken us any closer to happiness. And so we need to find out, well, where would be a source 
for this happiness? How can we find true happiness, happiness that lasts and that's not just built on human reasoning or empirical science? The Bible's claim never claims that human reasoning is involved. The Bible always claims that there's something deeper than human reasoning. It's a deep down inner joy despite circumstances. And that has a deeply spiritual root cause. We're gonna look at that because of Psalm 1 today. So is this new news or old? Maybe you've read the Psalms plenty of times and you think, yeah, this is kind of old news. I've, I've been through the Psalms, I understand that. Okay, that's good. But let me ask you, you Christians who've been in church all of your, all of your lives, and maybe you can even quote some of the Psalms. Are you fundamentally a content person? Would people describe you as being consistently happy? If so, great, good for you. If not, you may fall into the category that many Christians do. We start to sort of pull away from some of the root cause that we knew was true at one point, but we start to get influenced by the other voices, by the other tugs at our hearts, and perhaps we've forgotten some of the things that we need to revisit and be reminded of. It's amazing how much that word remember shows up in scripture. The Israelites forgot, as we see over and over again. We heard about that at 9.30 in Mark Elwell's presentation about the judges. He keeps reminding us that Israel kept forgetting. So we need to keep reminding ourselves why it's so important to get back into God's word and to send our taproot deep into the living water. So if you are a fundamentally happy person, good for you. If you think there's some room for improvement in this area, as I suspect we probably all have some room for improvement, then this message is gonna be good for all of us, I suspect. So Psalm 1, I ran across one scholar who nicknamed Psalm 1 the gatekeeper psalm. Why would he refer to that as a gatekeeper? It's because the foundational principles of all the Psalms, every one of those songs and poems that made up the hymnal of the Jewish people are also fundamental to the entire Christian faith. So they, in a sense, Psalm 1 could be the gatekeeper of the Bible, God's word to us. Now, I had looked at this same Psalm a couple of years ago in 2018. It was called, Where Can I Find Happiness? If you want to look for that, it's on our website. Uh, there's a YouTube channel. If you go to messages and then go down to YouTube messages, there's a playlist called Grand Stories of the Bible. And this one, believe it or not, was Grand Stories of the Bible number 119. So I'm not going to re-preach this whole message for you. You can find that. And it goes into more detail with all four of the basic principles in Psalm 1 for you. The premise to this whole idea is that those who are seeking externally, outwardly, physically, temporary happiness, happiness will always elude them. It will only be temporary. It'll be like a caffeine high. It only lasts for a while, but it's gonna wear off. But those who understand this permanent, lasting, deep, and abiding peace and joy, contentment, are those who find it inwardly, deeply, spiritually, and eternally. So today, I'm actually going to just focus on one specific point from Psalm 1, since you can find the other three points in that message on our website. I'd like to read for you this psalm, and I want it to just pour over you. And so rather than have you read along with me, I'd like for you to just listen as I read it to you. It's not a terribly long psalm. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked, or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight or happiness 
of blessedness is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers, not so the wicked. They're like the chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. May the Lord add his meaning to this word and add light to it, because we know that light always emanates from God's word each time we look into it. So, as Dr. Pipe mentioned in his exhortation to us, happiness, true, lasting happiness, really is possible. That's the first thing we understand by reading this very first principle in the first psalm of the Psalms. It is possible. I don't know where you fall in the list of these different categories, but there are three basic categories of people. You can be young and naive. You would be the ones who are sort of living in a Disney uh, movie. And that's where everything turns out well. The beast turns into a handsome young man. They get married, everybody cheers, and everybody lives happily ever after. And so happiness, when you're young, seems achievable. And then there are those on the other end of the spectrum, those of us old geezers who have lived long enough. And it's easy to become jaded and cynical. And after that, it, you start to think, well, maybe it's more like, maybe happiness is more like a Shakespearean tragedy. If you could look at some of the Shakespearean tragedies, uh, Romeo and Juliet or King Lear, you know what happens in all those, right? All the key characters die in the end. Wah, wah, wah. Or we're probably, most of us find ourselves more in the medium category, this third category, which means that we're usually migrating from naive and young and expectant and happy to being a little more jaded. I'm sure there's a spectrum and you may fall somewhere in that spectrum, but the Bible doesn't say that we have to fit any of those three categories. What we start to see immediately in this title track of the Psalms is that happiness is possible if, and I'm using not the biblical term here, but an analogy, if you're an evergreen, if you're one of these whose roots are planted deep into the water, then even though the heat and the drought comes, your leaves do not wither and you don't fall away. And so there's a fourth category which says, yes, there is happiness and it is possible. But if you're seeking after the kind of happiness that most of the world seeks after, it's gonna be gone in an instant. It'll be like the mirage down the road and the closer you get to it, the farther away it seems. The truly happy person is content at the core. So here's a reasonable question. If we're gonna follow this age of reason, and start asking good questions. I think it's a reasonable and fair question to ask those who think that all that their happiness can be summed up or found in empirical science and investigation and by human reasoning. So by using that same reasoning, we should be able to ask if happiness is possible, then why are so few people genuinely happy? That's a fair question. And I think it's a fair question for them to ask to believers, to Christians. They could turn that question on us and say, there's an awful lot of grumpy Christians around. And you'd be right. 
I think there are a lot of us who would really like to be more happy, which is why we're gathered today to look into the Psalms, because as I mentioned, even though we may be familiar with the Psalms, God is still working on all of us, and we're all works in progress. And I, for one, need to continually look into the Word so that God can renew that steadfast spirit within me. A reasonable answer to that question is this. People are looking for happiness apart from the wisdom God provides for us. I think that's why a lot of people are not terribly happy. They're looking in all the wrong places. They're looking in things that are temporary fixes, things that will bring them temporary pleasure, temporary satisfaction, but it doesn't last. A truly happy person, according to the Psalms, is a person who's like that tree planted by the water. And I remember seeing some of those in Arizona. Went out with my dad to pick up a car one time. He was gonna drag it home and try to rework it and make it into a, a workable car. It never happened, by the way. Uh, he thought maybe that car was gonna make him happy and he never quite got around to fixing that car. <laughs> wound up selling it years later. But that's beside the point. We were out there in the field and it was a desert with 110 degrees in the sunshine. And uh, there was an irrigation ditch. And next to that ditch was this huge tree. And it was the kind of tree that would make you think, man, that's been there a while, almost like the one that Dr. Pipe showed us in his worship exhortation. And you go over to that tree and recognize that it was tapped into something that most of the rest of the items in that desert were not. It was close to the water source and it had sent those roots deep down into the water and it provided such shade for us. We loved that tree that day. The truly happy person is like that tree. We're planted by the stream of water we get to send our roots deep down into it. Now, notice as well in this first verse and in this first psalm that this tree still has difficulties. It's not that there's a force field magically surrounding the tree that would keep us as Christians completely safe from any harm. I think it's still good for us to, to understand the heat still comes. We still have dry seasons, seasons where we feel like we're praying and our prayers aren't really going anywhere. Nobody's answering or it's bouncing off of heaven's ceiling. Whatever's happening, we're just not getting through. Sometimes the droughts are there and we just feel like we're kind of walking dead people and we don't feel very alive. That happens to everybody, including strong Christians. I was reading just last week about Mother Teresa and some of her diary entries. And there was one season where she felt like her prayers weren't getting answered. That was Mother Teresa, for Pete's sake. If the strongest believers that we know can go through seasons like that, it ought to bolster our spirits to know you're not alone if you're going through a season like that. I think many of us have struggled with some doubts, with some fears, with some feelings of loneliness and isolation because of this whole pandemic. Hey, you should be aware, pandemics affect everybody. Believers aren't just isolated with a force field so that we can be glib and happy and carefree and not worry about what's going on around us. The pandemic affects all of us and the suffering in the world should still have an impact on all of us. So it's not that we don't feel the weight of pain and suffering in our world, but we feel it differently because there's something deep down that still gives us a contentment knowing that our eternal security is there and present in our lives. So the biggest mistake people make in trying to find happiness is that we're trying to use outwardly visible manifestations of happiness, things that we can measure, things that we think will make us happy. And that kind of happiness ultimately relies on circumstance. And we can't afford to rely simply on our circumstances to make us happy. I know 
Many of my weeks are filled with circumstances that are reason to be frustrating and even angry at times. That's not where I'm basing my ultimate deep down at the core happiness or contentment. True happiness is not found in what happens to you, but it's found in who you are. And who you are, if you're rooted in the living water, is a person who's been recreated in the image of Jesus Christ and who's continuing to be recreated. You're continuing to be molded into his image. As we're renewing our minds and hearts through the word, we're becoming more and more like Jesus Christ. We're a new creation. That's who we are in Christ. And if we can find our true happiness and contentment based on what God thinks of us, not what everybody else thinks of us, then we can find true happiness. Notice in 1 Peter, where he echoes this sentiment and takes us even a little deeper and gives us a good balance in terms of managing our feelings versus managing our true contentment. In all this, he says, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. He's talking to a group of people who were suffering greatly. We understand that. We're starting to sense that many, many, many more people around us are suffering on a wider scale than probably any of us have dealt with in a long time. But he says in all this, well, what is the all this? We have to back up a couple of verses to find out what he's talking about there. In his great mercy, God has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. That's why we can be content or happy despite the temporary trials. And notice that he had two present tense words in that. He didn't say, oh, uh, you can be happy because you're denying or ignoring the grief that you're going through. He said, you can be totally content and you can go through trials and grief both at the same time. To deny pain is to delay healing. We can't distract ourselves from pain and expect to work through the pain. That's where a lot of uh, addictions stem from. People are trying to somehow cover over, put a Band-Aid over their pain or the painful feelings or emotions that they just don't want to have to feel. And so they numb them. And so they self-medicate with whatever it is they choose. That's not going to help you work through the pain. The only way to feel better is to not feel good for a while. And Peter understood that when he was saying, you can rejoice at one hand while you're suffering. There can be rejoicing and suffering both at the same time. Uh, I hope Scott doesn't mind that I'm using him as a, an illustration for this. I, I suspect he wouldn't mind. I spoke to him on the phone yesterday because many of you who are part of our closed uh, group Facebook page community know that Scott and his wife Yvonne are going through a loss right now. Um, Yvonne's mom is going to be in heaven soon if she's not already. Uh, she's marching steadily there. She had been suffering with different uh, physical ailments, including MS, for years. And then it looks like COVID-19 is going to be the one thing that's finally going to complete that, uh, that journey for her. And so her earthly tent is wearing out. But Scott said, this was a great testimony. He said, you know, I'm okay, though, because I know that my mother-in-law is a believer. And I know that she was looking forward to heaven someday, and this someday is going to come quicker. He's not denying the fact that there's going to be sadness 
Of course there's sadness. We're all going to experience sadness. We should experience sadness when there's loss. But we can't distract ourselves from that sadness or deny it and expect to move through the sadness. One of the things that I've noticed through the years, and I've had opportunity to be at a lot of different funerals, it's an occupational hazard, I suppose. I've seen different cultures and subcultures and how they grieve. And what I've noticed is that those people that are allowed to grieve deeply and to feel what they feel without being squelched from that tend to move more quickly through the stages of grief and come out strong on the other end, especially if they know their loved one is a believer. When I've seen those cultures at work, I thought, you know, I think that probably we could learn something from those cultures. We need to learn the fine art of lamenting. That's why the Psalms are so good for us. That's why I'd like to direct people into the Psalms. If you're feeling some feelings that you're not sure what to deal with, keep reading through the Psalms. The Psalmist is good at expressing all these kinds of feelings, including pain and suffering and lamentation. Sometimes we need to cry out to God and say, God, how long is this gonna last? And just be honest with him. He's big enough. He can take it. Learning to lament is something that David learned after he had sinned with the Bathsheba incident. And he said in one of his psalms, when I kept silent, and we learned through some more commentary that the silence he's talking about is refusing to confess his sin. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. He was poetically expressing how he felt. He felt like things were literally dying inside him. That's what it feels like to grieve deeply. But as he expressed himself, even there was power in the words of even expressing grief to God. Because as he did so, as he became real with his feelings and with his own sin and confessed his sin to the Lord, things started to shift. His attitude shifted. He became more aware of God's healing, comfort, and presence. Well, deeper roots means more rejoicing for all of us. 1 Peter 1.6, again, you're in deep joy and you're also in deep distress. I figured that out each time that I've had a relative pass away. I remember flying to Arizona and being there for my mom's passing uh, back in 2012. My sister and I walked through that together. God bless her. My sister was a rock in that time for me. And she and I spent so much time in the hospital and at my mother's bedside and then at my mom's deathbed in the hospice care center. And we would find ourselves in situations where we would be, and it was not a roller coaster of emotions, meaning that it was like manic depressive uh, tendencies. It was not that kind of thing. It was a balance between being grieved in our spirits because we were going to miss many of the things we loved that we were able to enjoy with our mom while she was on the earth, but looking so forward to the fact that she would no longer be suffering. And there was both deep joy and deep sadness all in the same uh, space of just a few short days. We could both be together in those moments, and we shared those moments together, and it drew us closer together. As I see happening with all the believers, as we learn to share each other's struggles and celebrations, if we're doing both of those things for one another, it draws us together and makes us family. I see that happening even at Living Water, and I see so many of you who have helped each other through different kinds of seasons in your lives, and you're close because of it. God turns these things to such good for us. Well, there's an overarching principle here, and I see this happening in this very first Psalm that's important. And that's why I think it's a gatekeeper principle because it's good for the whole Bible. Happiness is about the who, it's not about the what. 
I figured that out when I was 14 years old. I shared this with our elders last Sunday night when we were having our small group meeting. This is what I wanted really badly when I was 14. It was what I thought I could afford if I worked hard enough to get it. It was a little Honda 70, a Trail 70. It's not just a mini bike, folks. This is a motorcycle. And I, I thought having a motorcycle would make me happy. Motorcycles were cool, especially when you're 14. And I saw some of my friends in my neighborhood riding motorcycles. And I thought, well, if they're happy, then I could get a motorcycle and I'll be happy too. But I kept begging my mom and dad to relent and get me a motorcycle. And then finally one night after supper, my dad said, son, we've been talking about your motorcycle problem. And I, I perked up because I thought, oh boy. Dad said, we've worked out an arrangement with your grandfather and we're going to work. And I went, Urgh. wait a minute, what? He, he used the word work as a part of his explanation. He said, we're going to let you work with your grandfather for the summer. And I thought, for the summer, for the whole summer, and you're going to earn money so that you can buy the motorcycle. And I calculated how long that would take and about how much money I might be making. And I thought, okay, well, here goes. I, I suppose that would be worth it. So I dove into that summer thinking that if I could just work hard enough and kind of get that work out of the way, then I would get that thing, the object of my happiness, and then I would be happy. You know where this was going. What I found out was it was about the who, not the what. Because yeah, I got the, I got the motorcycle. It was fun. I spent some good hours running around in the trails in the desert in Arizona. It was good. But what I cherished the most was that guy on the right-hand side of your picture, the one that says daddy, because my mom scribbled some notes on her pictures that I found after she passed away. That's my mom in the center. And her parents, the one I worked with, Willard Hardcastle that summer. And he taught me life skills that have lasted to this day. He was a carpenter and a pastor. And he taught me how to build things and work with my hands. He taught me how to care for people. He taught me how to let my face express what I was singing because he said, your voice sounds like you mean what you're singing, but now you need to tell your face that. And we would sing duets in the church on Sundays at the church where he was the music leader on that summer that I spent with granddaddy. It was about the who. I cherish the who. And that's where my true happiness was really found that summer when I was 14. That's what the psalmist is trying to set us up for as we look at all the psalms, that if we're seeking happiness in the what, always going to fall short. But if we'll seek happiness in the who, if we'll send our roots deep down into the living water, then we're going to find true lasting satisfaction at the core of who we are. John says this, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Now that sounds like he's talking about Jesus Christ, like he's talking about himself. But look what John says in a little explanatory note right after that. But this he spoke of the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. Well, the spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. So Jesus is saying, for those of you who trust me, I'm going to give you the gift of the Spirit. And all three of the Trinity, all three persons in the personhood of God, our Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, all three are involved in this happiness because God reveals himself to us, as we saw last week. He does so through creation and through the written word. 
And then he also reveals himself through the Spirit, who is given to us as a gift as we trust Jesus Christ. All three of those are gifts to us. If we get to know him through the Word, as revealed by the Spirit, God is involved in every part of that process. And he starts to show us what true contentment really sounds like. Happiness sounds like praise that erupts voluntarily through the believer as we learn to trust him and thank him for giving us what we really need the most, which is himself. So I hope that Psalm 1 will become one of those great hits for you, that every time you look back at it and read it, it will take you back to a place where you learned what true contentment sounds like. I pray that that will happen in your life, and I'd like to pray for us right now before we have a benediction. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you've shown us, you've revealed yourself to us, and that you want us to be happy. The Christianity, which is sometimes seen inappropriately as just a, a bunch of moral people trying to shake their finger in other people's faces and tell them how they should live their lives, it's not at all what Christianity is about. You've shown us that true Christianity means a life lived in Christ with our taproots down deep into your word where we can gain that living water, that perspective of eternity that shows us why even though we may be grieving, there can still be a contentment deep down and abiding and lasting contentment. Thank you for doing that for all of us who trust you. And I pray that if there are those who are still looking for that, that they'll reach out to you, that they'll look into your word, that they'll read more and more about your son, Jesus Christ, and to find out what you did for us through your son. And I pray that they'll find that same contentment and I thank you for what you're going to do in all of our lives as we continue to trust you. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.